All right. Hey, next week, we're going to just roll right to the next book. So we're going to be in 2 Peter next Sunday. Uh, I'd like to encourage you to read ahead. You know, as much as I pray and believe that when we gather together that God has a word for all of us, regardless of where we're at in our walk with the Lord, uh, and at times when we gather, I do believe God speaks through revelation, right? Like we're studying together and the Lord will, you know, the Spirit will just illuminate your heart and God will drop this beautiful truth in there. Uh, So God speaks that way, but I also believe that God speaks through confirmation. And so as you read ahead and you pray through and consider what God might be saying to you through 2 Peter, and then as we gather together and I share with you what the Lord gave to me, then, you know, if it connects, you're like, all right, look, the Lord confirmed some things. And so uh, I do want to lovingly encourage and challenge you. You guys know we just go systematically. We're just going book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so if you can read the first chapter of Second Peter in the next Sunday as we gather, I'll share what God gave to me. And hopefully, again, it'll be confirmations for some things that you know, the Lord's been stirring your heart. But for this morning, we're in First Peter. We're going to finish up at chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. So it's just three verses, those closing. I wouldn't even call it a benediction. It's really just a shout out that Peter gives to a number of people. So All right. I saw the guys came through the Bibles already, right? I'm behind. Sorry. First Peter, if you're there, can you stand with me in honor of God and his word? And it'll give me a couple seconds to get there myself. All right. Well, Peter writes, of course, inspired of God's spirit. His closing thoughts here. He says, By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And then he says, she who is in Babylon, that's a very curious statement to me, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son, And then he directs them to greet one another with a kiss of love. And then, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. All right. Let's pray together, and then we'll unpack the scriptures. Father, we thank you for yet another beautiful day here in Okinawa Paradise. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that we can gather in person to be here shoulder-to-shoulder, face-to-face, and really before you, as your word reminds us that uh, you inhabit, you dwell within the praises of your people. And so, Father, we thank you that you're here. And we pray that through your spirit that you would lead us and guide us and teach us, comfort us, convict us. Lord, just help us to be a blank canvas in a sense that you would write into the, the the tablet of our heart all that you want to say, and all that you want to do. Um, Lord, we, we want to surrender that to you. And God, we trust that you have a word for all of us, even through these closing verses that's alive, it's living. Lord, you use it as a, a type of surgeon's scalpel. It's a sword, two-edged sword. It can cut away the things that don't belong. It makes us sensitive to your voice. And so, Father, may you do that necessary heart surgery in each of us. 
And Lord, we, we pray also for Josh, who's teaching over at KFC. We pray for Kevin, who's teaching at uh, Refuge in Chiang Mai. Uh, Lord, we pray for our church family members that are traveling, deployed, wherever they may be. Lord, keep them safe. For those who aren't feeling well, we ask for health and wellness and healing. We commit all these things to you. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment, greet a neighbor, greet somebody new, introduce yourself. Thank you guys for uh, journeying with us through First Peter. If you've been here through the whole time, bless. I, and some of you haven't, but we're grateful that you're here. Uh, as we get to the end here, um, Peter has this, basically the shout out that he has for these people. And, and, I, and I entitled our message, Last Lessons. Basically some things that we can glean together from these closing verses here in First Peter. And, and Peter himself, I would say like the Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with the New Testament and the, uh, the letters, the epistles that he writes, he, he, he wrote to share his heart, right? He has a very pastoral heart. Paul does, Peter does, on some very pressing matters that pertain to this community, this group of believers that we're living at this time. And as we talked about last Sunday in review, you know, this letter that he writes was intended to provide comfort and encouragement, That's his goal. He wants to comfort these guys, encourage these guys, because they've been going through some hard times by the virtue of the fact that they were Christians. And so the the way that he does that is he reminds them then who they are in the Lord, all that God has given them, all the blessings they have, the reality. He doesn't sugarcoat anything, right? He lets them know, like, yep, you're God's kids, but guess what? You're going to get sucker punched at times, uh, so be prepared for that. And so just these spiritual truths that he, he lays out, but also, also practical application of, of what does it look like then to endure through those things? And what does it look like then to follow Christ in our family relationships at work, uh, with people who don't like us? Uh, how do we interact with you know, church members, you know, other people within our community? And so th- there, there are some very practical things. Peter lovingly challenges uh, the Christ follower in his letter, and of course, as we read, it pertains to us today as well, right? To stay the course, like keep on keeping on. That's the idea. Despite the bumpy roads and despite the turbulence of life, despite the dark days and all the things that we can go through. And, and I liken Peter to almost like a good coach. I don't know if you ever played sports and just had a coach that you appreciated, that you respected. And, and I think one of the qualities of a good coach is that they, they, they will challenge us, right? They'll pull us up when we get down, pat us on the back when we need to, but also kick us in the pants at the same time, right? To, to get us to keep going. And, and I think Peter, in many ways, is like that. Peter, also like Paul, we discover, uh, was very relational. He wasn't just sitting far away in some ivory tower, you know, removed, writing kind of these uh, these letters uh, detached from the people, the community, and the situation that he's writing to. No, he's, he's really involved. He's very connected. Uh, he knows exactly what's going on with the people, with the places, with the situation. Uh, again, he wasn't unaware of those influences and impacts, but, but rather he, he, we see as a genuine concern for them as a community, for them as individuals, uh, with some insight to the unique dynamics and challenges of that particular region and area and those things. You know, I think, I think many of us have experienced a time where um, those in leadership, um, whether 
you know, that we see or maybe we don't see, people who are making decisions for us, they're in positions, and they make decisions and they give directions, and yet it, we would say it's completely detached from the reality of our situation. It's like they have no clue what's going on here, no clue what's going on in the front line, and yet you know, they're, they're giving us this direction and they, they themselves are completely devoid of understanding of how it's going to impact us, right? How it's going to affect our family, the mission, uh, your workload, what, whatever it may be, right? We've all experienced those things. I would say Peter's not that. He's in tune with what's going on. And, and so he addresses some specific challenges to a specific community. And yet those things as we've studied them, still apply in our day. The challenges that we experience in our faith as a Christ follower today, I mean, that is the beauty of the Bible in itself, right? It, it, as we prayed, it's alive. The Bible declares of itself. It's living. Uh, God says, I will accomplish what I want it to do. In Isaiah 55, it won't come back void. Um, but God will use it to speak wisdom and perspective and, and life into our very hearts, here and now. And that is the beauty of what we get to read, what we get to study, what we get to live by the scriptures. And through all of that, then, we also see not only does Peter have the kind of this um, general encouragement for this particular group, but also we find here that he identifies very specific people that he acknowledges and he addresses. He has some words for them. Now, Paul does that often in his letters, names the names and says hello and gives the shout outs. Um, And so Peter gives a few here. This morning in our time of study, we're going to identify three of them, uh, along with some closing comments. And and then I just want to share kind of a a general observation, some closing thoughts of Peter in his letter overall as he closes. Okay, and so our time this morning, we'll consider three things. Uh, from these three verses, and I hope to draw some application for our lives today. If you're a note taker, here they are. First of all, it's just the people he acknowledges, and we're going to glean a little bit from each of them. Not really in depth, but just kind of a surface consideration. The people he acknowledges, he has two closing charges that he gives to his audience. We'll look at those. And then lastly, number three, just the example he provides, I think for all of us, And I would say indirectly, and I mean indirectly in that he doesn't say, hey, learn, follow what I'm doing or learn from my example. He's just doing it and we can see what he's doing and say, wow, that's probably a good thing for us to copy and implement in our lives too. So with that, verse 12, he says, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him. All right, we'll pause right there. Um, Peter acknowledges this guy by the name of Silvanus. We haven't been introduced to him in Peter's letter before. He just shows up right here at the end. Uh, now, most Bible scholars agree that this Silvanus is actually Silas. Uh, you know, he has the, you know, it's just like my real name is Richard and I go by Rick. And so we, you know, we have different kind of nicknames or different names that we're known by. And so Silvanus, perhaps his Aramaic name, and then Silas, just, you know, his nickname and if it is indeed Silas, then Silas is the guy, if you remember, you know, know the scripture, he, he also served not just with Peter, evidently, but also with Paul the Apostle. And we, and we find him, or we meet him, actually, in the book of Acts. And a lot of our, um, what we know about Silas is from the book of Acts. Um, we first meet him in Acts chapter 15. Uh, he was already part of the church congregation that was meeting in Jerusalem. 
uh, it seems as though he was already faithful there, serving there. He was, you know, in leadership there. When Paul and Barnabas come back uh, and they begin to share what's going on, you know, with the first missionary journey and they're um, explaining all of that. Well, the church says, hey, we want to send another group along with you. And they end up picking Silas. Silas is one of those guys he's handpicked from the Jerusalem church to go along with Paul and, and, you know, basically on the second trip. And so he goes. Uh, Another perhaps better known occasion where we see Silas uh, in the scriptures is in Acts chapter 16. So it's just a chapter later. Um, Paul and him are preaching the gospel. They get thrown in prison, right? They get thrown in the county lockup. And, uh, and, and so him and Paul are there, and at midnight, the Bible says, that, well, they begin to break out in song. They're just starting to sing, you know, um, hymns and songs, and, and they're doing that in the middle of the night. And, and the rest of the prisoners are listening to this, and all of a sudden, God, I think, supernaturally, or maybe naturally supernaturally, this huge earthquake happens, the doors rattle off, and, uh, and basically, God would use that to set them free. So it's that Silas. Now... We're not sure how Peter and Silas hooked up. Like, how did they end up? Were they part of the same Facebook group? Like, how does that happen? I don't know, you know. Um, but obviously they did. And, uh, and Peter um, evidently trusts Silas, Salvanus, enough to be the guy who then delivers this very letter to, remember the opening, to all of the pilgrims and all of the exiles that were basically scattered across modern-day Turkey today. So this is the guy who's delivering. You know, back then they didn't have UPS or FedEx. They didn't have a, uh, you know, um, black cat, right? Yamato uh, delivery didn't exist. And so Silas is the guy. He is basically the personal mailman that takes the scroll that Peter probably wrote out, and he's delivering it to the leaders, and they're going to read it to the community, and, and that's kind of how they rolled back then. Uh, and now Silas himself is no stranger to travel. He's no stranger to the mission field. We'd say he's a, he's a missionary veteran. I mean, he experienced some hard stuff um, on his trips along with Paul along the way. You know, he's kind of old school. He's an OG, missionary OG. Um, but here, here's the thing I want to note with you. Note, notice that Peter calls him our faithful brother. That, that's the attribute that's ascribed to him, and that's the one that we want to just park for a moment and glean from. Now, it would seem that the people that Peter is writing to would also know Silas. Like, he doesn't have to introduce him. He doesn't have to give any bio. He just says, hey, it's our faithful brother. And I imagine the people who are reading this are like, yep, we know him, um, that he's our faithful brother. And so first of all, just the fact that he calls him brother, that means, you know, he's part of the faith. In the Greek, it's the word aldophos, uh, just means brother. Great reminder for all of us that God has called us together to be family. Uh, you and I get to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, you know, first of all, God calls you to himself. That's primary, right? Back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul, Peter wrote, and God who called us, God who called us to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Um, Excuse me, back in verse 10 of chapter 4, I apologize. Uh, And then back in chapter 1 of verse 3, Peter also wrote, Blessed be the God who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of 
Jesus Christ. So it's, so it's the Lord, right? God, God himself called you. God himself begot you. God himself brought you and me. As Ephesians tells us, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God in his great mercy made us alive. It's God who then brought us to himself in this new relationship that we get to enter into, right? We didn't know God. We didn't want anything to do with God. We were once far removed from God, but guess what? You and I now are part of the household of God, the amazing grace that God has poured out upon us, that we get to be then part of God's family. And the Bible says, uh, you know, behold what manner of love that God had bestowed upon you and me that we even get to do that. And Paul says how the Spirit's been placed inside of us, and guess what? We get to cry out, Dad, right? Abba, Father. That's the relationship that God brings us into. And, and I think most of you know this, right? It's not... It's not religion, right? It's not to follow these rules and regulations and rituals, and if you can be good enough and give enough and, and, you know, and just achieve certain things, then God will love you. Then God will accept you. No, no, no. It is completely the opposite, right? God loves you. God has accepted you. Jesus died for your sins and mine. And then we get to be brought into a loving relationship. Then we're the Lord because he loves us enough, right? Accepts us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. That's the goodness of God. Amen? And so we get to then be brought into this new relationship. We're brought into a relationship with God, and then we're brought into a new relationship with each other. We get to be brothers and sisters in this thing called the church, in the household of faith. And so he acknowledges him as a brother. He acknowledges him as faith. Faithful. He calls him faithful. Faithful in this context describes character. The first challenging thought, does that describe your character? Like with people around you and the community that you're a part of, who know you, would they say amen? Would they give an affirmation that, yep, you are a faithful brother or you're a faithful sister? The Greek word is uh, pistos, and it means dependable, reliable, trustworthy. What we discover is that this guy, Silvanus, Silas, had proven himself faithful. Faithful over many situations, many difficult things with Paul, and yet here also with Peter, he affirms the same quality in this guy. And, And church family, it is a great quality. It is a godly quality that you and I, as followers of Christ, would be found faithful. Be found faithful. Now, Paul underscores the importance of this. He writes to the Corinthians, and he says, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. And in this case, moreover, it's required then of stewards that one would be found faithful or trustworthy. It's the same word. It's it's pistos. It's 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 1. So, you have the rest of that verse? That's, there it goes. And so I want to suggest to you that it, it's a quality trait that God desires to cultivate in all of us. Faithfulness. Faithfulness first to him. Faithfulness to others. Faithful to the word. But it's good. It's a good diagnostic for us this morning, like consider our own lives. Are are we faithful? Have I been faithful to the things that God has laid before me? Faithful in my devotion? Faithful in my prayer life? Faithful in 
my commitments to church or to other people? Have we been faithful in service? Faithful, again, all these different areas, right? Faithful in our giving? I mean, have you been faithful in just keeping your word to somebody? Or are you always having to say I'm sorry for breaking your commitments or breaking promises? Faithful in your integrity at work? Cutting corners? Are we ditching out late or coming in late or ditching out early, I should say? So we, we consider his quality, and there's a lot to say, but we'll just make this comment. We'll move on. That, that God would want us to be faithful. Faithful in the place that God has put you. Faithful with the people that God has surrounded you with. Of course, your family, your commitments, your workplace, our church family. And so, some things to consider, and it's good. By Salvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him. So, Peter affirms uh, that he says, I, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And then he says, She who is in Babylon. So here's the second person that we're going to look at. And we'll come back to the rest of verse 12, by the way. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. Now he doesn't name who this is, uh, he just, just uses the pronoun, <laughs> it's female. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you. So the question is for us, oh, who, who is he talking about? Who, who is she who is in Babylon, and, and why is Peter giving this shout out for her? So the context of the letter doesn't tell us, right? We always want to look at text within context. Is there something else going on there? There's, did Peter give us some clues previously? And the answer to that question is no, he didn't. So it's left for us to basically give our best guess. And, and here's the two main ideas I'll share with you uh, about who she might be. She, number one, is uh, a, a woman that everyone would know, maybe like Salvanus, where he doesn't have to give a lot of background. Perhaps this woman is a woman that he doesn't even have to give her name, that everybody would kind of know, like, yep, we know the the lady in Babylon, or whoever it may be, the sister in Babylon. Um, and so everybody would know. Some would even suggest perhaps it's Peter's wife. You know, Peter uh, was married. And so maybe he's just saying, hey. And, and everyone would know, like, all right, you know, my wife's over in Babylon. <laughs> and uh, extending a greeting. So that's one That's one idea. People think, all right, it's a, it's a lady. Maybe it's Peter's wife. That's, that's a possibility. Uh, the other possibility uh, that uh, Bible scholars suggest is that she isn't referring to an uh, actual person, but she is referring to a church, so the church community in that area. And, uh, and since the Greek word for church, ekklesia, is uh, a feminine noun, uh, and often, you know, when referred to then by pronoun, like she and her, and so... Uh, that Peter is referring to not a literal physical person, perhaps he is referring to the church, and he's calling her she. Now, of those two, at least for me today, uh, I, I think it makes sense that he's referring to the church. Now, could he be referring to a lady that everybody knows? Certainly. Could he be referring to his wife? Perhaps. It just seems to me in context and the way that it's described that he's uh, talking about the church. Now, the other curious part is, is Babylon. Uh, she who's in Babylon. And so there's some debate about what, what does Peter mean? And we just take him at face value. Is he talking about, 
you know, Babylon, the Hanging Gardens, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the time of Daniel, the Euphrates River, uh, what is that, Iraq, right, modern-day Iraq. So, again, uh, some, those who study such things, they, they think that Peter isn't talking about, this is one idea, that he's not actually talking about a literal Babylon, but he's using a, a code name for the city of Rome, and that they suggest that Peter, because they believe he's in Rome, and he's writing this letter to uh, you know, those who are scattered abroad, um, that he's going to use this as a code name, other than just saying Rome, but he's going to call it Babylon. And, and some suggest that because when you get to the book of Revelation, uh, John, the apostle who writes the book of Revelation, seems to do the same thing. Uh, he seems to allude to uh, not just physical Babylon, perhaps a spiritual Babylon or an economic Babylon. It depends on how you interpret those things. But because of that, because John does similar, there are those who say, oh, Peter is kind of following that same trend. He's really talking about Rome, but he's going to use this uh, name of Babylon. So that's one idea. Another idea that some suggest is that, oh, he's talking about a literal Babylon, but it's not the same Babylon as Daniel. It's a different town called Babylon, which, okay, that, that could be. I mean, there are cities that share the same name, right? Here in Okinawa, there's a yogi in Okinawa City, and there's a yogi down in Naha, right? There's, there's a Paris, Texas, and there's a Paris, France, um, there's a Jacksonville, Florida, and there's a Jacksonville, North Carolina, right? And, and you got to make sure that if you get your tickets and you get orders to one of those, that it's the right one. You guys heard the story, what happened to the Payne family? They got orders to Jacksonville, North Carolina. They got tickets to Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> Poor Katie and the kids. And I realized when, until they were like, you know, getting to the gate and they're like, oh, we're not going to Florida. But Praise the Lord, they're, they're in North Carolina now, but... So some believe it's just a different Babylon. It's Babylon, but it's a different city called Babylon. And yet others think, no, Peter is not talking about a literal um, Babylon. Uh, did I, am I saying that right? Did I want to believe that? Oh, no, sorry. That Peter is talking about little Babylon. I'll get it right for a second service. You guys are, you guys are my group of grace. Um, that he's talking, he is talking about literal Babylon. He's talking about the same Babylon that we read about in the Old Testament. He's talking about you know the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel in, in that place, and that there was a community of believers there. There was a church that existed there. That God and the gospel, you know, God had sent the gospel out, and there are believers there, and so. Peter, aware of them, connected with them, is giving a shout out to the other people who are kind of, you know, again, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And, uh, and with that, I want to say, as of today, that's what I believe. I believe that Peter is talking not about Rome. I don't think he's talking about a different little town, Babylon. I think he's talking about, you know, Babylon, Big B Babylon, Hanging Gardens Babylon, uh, and that he's referring to a church that's established there, and he's giving a shout out. And I say that because I think in terms of the theme, the theme of just that one section, that, that he's kind of painting a, a portrait of a family. 
Are you saying, listen, I'm grateful for my brother who you guys know who brought this letter, Salvanus. He's a good bro. Um, I'm grateful for him. And then he's also, in a sense, saying, I'm thankful for our sister church uh, way out in Babylon, and they are just as much family as the local church. Uh, then he's going to you know, acknowledge um, Mark, his son. And the idea that God chose them, all of them, um, not just her, not just his wife, right? Because notice how he describes it, right? That, that she is elect just like you guys. She is elect together with you. And so what I want to suggest to you that he's talking about a completely different geographic region. He's talking about a different uh, church of a different ethnicity, a different makeup. And the fact that the gospel has reached across uh, you know, that part of the world at that time and that God called them to himself, just like God called you and me to himself, just like God called Peter and other Jews to himself, that the saving grace of God then spreads across you know, the world and makes all of us family in the Lord. And so that's my suggestion to you, that it's a great reminder that we should be faithful, and faithful what? Well, faithful members, not only of a local community, a local body, a local church, but that we get to be part of a greater global church community. And I think then, whether it is Rome or it's actual Babylon, it speaks then to the diversity of God's people. And, and, I, and I, I find this really curious. You know why? I find it curious because it's Peter. It's Peter who's writing this. And why I say it's curious, because if you know Peter's kind of his story, right, his testimony, is that when we first meet Peter as a fisherman, uh, you know, he's a good Jewish boy. And, and he grew up in that community, he grew up around Galilee, and so that, you know, that's what he knew. Um, but being, if you will, culturally and ethnically um, a good Jew in Peter's day, it also then meant that you didn't like certain groups. Like the Samaritans were one, they would write off, like we have nothing to do with the Samaritans. And, and just Gentiles in general. Like anybody that was not Jewish, you kept your distance from, right? There, there was, I mean, the reality is there was prejudice in that. There was, there was discrimination in, in that. And so for Peter, he, and we see that play out a little, right? He, he initially refuses God when God comes to him and tells him, I want you to go to a non-Jew house, I want you to go to this Gentile's house by the name of Cornelius, and I want you to go and, and minister to him. And it's recorded for us in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10. So Peter's in the city called Joppa. He's taken a little siesta on the rooftop. And, and in this vision, God speaks to him, right? It's this giant sheet that comes down and has all these different animals. You guys familiar with that? Acts 10. Oh, by the way, by the way, I'll make a plug. Daijobo Yumi. Uh, so our Israel trip for next year, we, we are locking in, and um, originally I was, we were trying to go in June, but everyone there said, don't come in June, it's lava hot. Like, have you ever been, it's like over 100 degrees every day, um, they said, I, I will, I'll melt you guys. So um, we're looking at June, uh, May, sorry, May 17th to the 27th, uh, ground package is $2,700, plus we got to get our airfare, so... Um, but all that to say, I'll make, I'll 
be letting you guys know more about our trip. If you, so save your pennies, recycle your cans. Um, one of the places we go is Joppa, and one of the places that we go to is, um, historically, they believe it's the same house where Simon the Tanner was. It's the house of Zacharias, if you've been there before. We'll stand outside the door, um, and we'll give a little Bible study, and, and we can go up on the roof and have the same vision of the giant tortilla that's coming down with the different animals. That's Peter's vision. God uses this as an illustration to challenge Peter, encourage Peter, to let Peter know, like, listen. Because um, initially, you know, the voice says, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, nope, I've never had bacon before. I'm a good Jewish boy. And the spirit through that vision says, hey, what, what God has declared clean, you can't call unclean anymore. And then all of a sudden, here comes this entourage saying, hey, you're being asked to go down to Cornelius' house. And Peter makes the connection. Okay, it's a Gentile's place. So initially, though, he gives them, he gives them resistance, right? He doesn't want to do this. And, and so Peter goes to Cornelius' house. By the way, he's a Roman military commander, right? He's part of the military. Um, in fact, we even see another occasion where Peter, who, who's already part of the leadership of the church, God's already working and... Uh, we, we get some interesting insight from Paul who writes to the Galatians and, and talks about this incident one time where Peter is eating with the, the, the Gentiles and all of a sudden these Jewish guys come and then he basically gives the Gentiles the cold shoulder and leaves their table, right? It's like high school all over again. Leaves their high school table, gets up and goes and sits down with the Jews. And Paul sees this and he says, I rebuked Peter. I, I called him out and said, you're a hypocrite. How can you you know, do that. And so, you know, again, we see some of these tendencies, even in Peter. And so I bring that up just to say, wow, isn't that interesting? Now, it's Peter then who's talking about, you know, those who are in Babylon greet you. And they are elect, just like they they were chosen and adopted and brought into the family, just like you and me were. And, And there's some great lessons here, too. I think we, we have to be careful that we, we don't define uh, worship. and We don't define our expression of faith through a single cultural lens. Like, we actually have to be intentional about that, right? Because we, we can be guilty of a type of ethnocentricity, right? Like, where we're just looking at things, looking at our faith, looking at the body of Christ, looking at expressions of worship, uh, through our culture, right? Through our, the way that we were brought up. And sometimes it's a form of pride. Because we, then we think, well, ours is then better or right, and that's less or that's worse. And, and, and dare I say, out of, out of love, I think, I think for us as American Christians, and I think I can add the, you know, the Japanese churches too, like, like we, we can be guilty of doing that against brothers and sisters of other cultures. Christians love the Lord, and yet their expression of faith and the way that they worship and the way that they do things isn't the way that we do them. And we can sometimes think, well, that, that's not right. You, you should do it our way. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not uh, packaged within a, a particular cultural context. Let me add this. It's not packaged within a political one either, by the way. 
Right? Sometimes we think, oh, if you're a Christian, then you should automatically be of this political party or persuasion or group. Listen, the gospel, the gospel is amazing in that it, it, it does two things at the same time. It both embraces culture, right? We don't, have to, we don't have to deny our culture. It both embraces culture and it transcends culture. Right? The kingdom culture, there are kingdom principles and kingdom culture that's expressed through uh, various cultural and ethnic contexts. It's the kingdom principle to worship God, which is what? Well, in spirit and truth, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, that's who God's seeking, to worship him in spirit and truth. There's a lot of freedom in that then. There's a lot of expression in that. There's a lot of variety in what that looks like. Several years ago, um, I I got to do uh, a missions trip to Africa. We went to, um, oh, where did I go? Uganda and Rwanda. Uh, did missions conference there and did a um, pastor's conference. And, uh, and I'll tell you, the way that the churches worshiped is not the way that we worship. It was very, very different. Uh, and there's several Calvary chapels there as well. And guess what? The way that they worshiped wasn't the way that we worship. Uh, they were very jubilant, very uh, demonstrative. Uh, I mean, that was for me a little out of my comfort zone. But that's the way that they worshiped. And so I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to worship the way that they worship within their, their context. And it was awesome. And, and yet still got up and preached the word and taught the word and faithful to scripture. Uh, a little bit different. You guys know I'm, I'm generally like Linus. This is my, this is my security blanket. I don't, I don't move too much out of the pocket, right? I'm not one of those, I'm not one of those mover guys. Uh, but, but all that to say, like, it... It was, it was so life-giving for me. And I begin to, you know, we, we realize in those kind of things, like, all right, listen, they worship the Lord. They love the Lord. It looks a little different for us. It's not right or wrong or bad or good. And, and in fact, I think it's, it serves as a preview of heaven. The Bible says every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to be for the Lord, right? Worshiping the Lord. And, and I'd add this. I think one of the many blessings that we get to enjoy here at Calvary Chapel Okinawa is that we, we too get a, uh, a preview of heaven in our worship services, right? at least as best as we can in terms of our English and Japanese. But, you know, we have other languages and other groups that are part of our church body. And we've shared with you before, we've been around, you know, like, uh, for example, we, we translate our messages not only into Japanese, like Yumi is doing that by radio. That's why if you ever look, if you ever see me looking this way, it's where our translator sits. Um, you know, it's Oz behind the curtain, but... Uh, but we also translate our messages into Ukrainian, into Chinese, and into Spanish. Uh, pretty cool. Right? We have our own little mini UN. Uh, <laughs> but it, you know, it's a preview of heaven, and we get to worship along with those you know, in their native tongue, their mother tongue, their heart language. And, and, and we, get to be, you know, we tend to be diverse in our makeup. And to be honest with you, I, I really love it. I appreciate that about our church. Um, you know, God has designed us. We've talked about this before. God has designed us on purpose to be different shapes and shades, right? We're, we're this mosaic. We're a kaleidoscope that we've been, we are brought together as the body of Christ. And then we get to then be a display of what, what does unity and love and community look like across different ethnicities and cultures, cultures and races, right? Like, 
It's a beautiful thing. And, and I think this one, this one little fact that Peter acknowledges she who's in Babylon, she's chosen, she's elect together with you. She's sending a greeting to this other community of believers. I, I, hope, that, I hope that you know there, there is no room in the kingdom of God. There's no room in the body of Christ for any racial or ethnic prejudice. There's no room for any preferential treatment or discrimination at any kind in the body of Christ. Genesis, the book of Genesis, I believe, teaches us that that we are all one race. We're we're the human race. That's the race. There's only one race. We're the human race. And the fact that we have different Skin color, it's determined by our, our melanin, right? It's melanin, not melatonin. Melatonin determines how well you sleep, right? That's, sometimes I get those things mixed up. And so Jesus himself provides this greatest example of the gospel that crosses cultural and ethnic and racial and what other, social, economic and education and gender and generational lines. I mean, all these things that tend to separate us. And, and, and he makes us, he calls us together, and he makes us one in respect to salvation. Right? Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, uh, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And so, uh, again, context, that's in regards to our salvation. Right? Obviously, we're still different genders and different races. Um, but here's the idea. It's, it's a God-given unity that he gives us. God, it's unity within our diversity. Right? Because unity defined by the gospel doesn't mean uniformity. Right? Unity is in our diversity. And we get to we get to experience that together, the unity part. We get to express that. Like we get to be a witness of that. We get to be an example of that. And, and how does that happen? This, right? When we are then in a loving, active, committed relationship together. You, you, ever, you ever go someplace and see groups of people and you're, and you're like, how are they connected? Like, how, like, what does this group look like? You ever people watch that way? Like I do it all the time. I'm trying to figure out, like, who's the mom, the grandpa, and, you know, what is this dynamic? Is this a team? What is this, a chess club? What's going on here, right? And I, and I, and I think we get to be that um, anomaly to the world. They look upon us and be like, what, what in the world is this group? What connects them? Because we don't all like Coco Curry, right? <laughs> I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we all love Jesus. And we all want to glorify God together. We all want to serve the Lord together. And so the church gets to be the example of that. The church gets to be an example of, of, of genuine love, of what familyship looks like across these lines that would normally divide others. And so all that to say, I think it's, I think it's interesting that it happens to be Peter who's giving a shout-out. Again, I believe it's the church in Babylon, Big B, where Daniel was, and he acknowledges they are elect, the idea that they're chosen, they've been adopted, they're the same as us, saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. So that's the second person. The third person he, he acknowledges, he, he just says, and mark 
And so does Mark, my son. So does Mark, my son. Now, again, who's Mark? This is the first time we're hearing about a Mark. Peter, who's Mark? He doesn't tell us, so we looked at greater context and history, and, and it seems as though the Mark that he's mentioning here is most likely it's John Mark. And John Mark, again, is a guy, as a young man, we meet him back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12. He's a guy that gets picked up to go on the first trip along with the Apostle Paul, with Barnabas. They're going to launch out. It's their first missionary journey. And, and it's not too long into that journey, Mark's like, I'm done, I'm out. I'm bailing. This is too much. And so John Mark leaves them. He basically quits. He resigns. He's like, I'm done. Again, if you know the account, you know that uh, Paul gets, has issue with that. And then they continue their trip. But when they come back, and they're like, hey, we're going to go on the second one. And Barnabas is like, we should bring John Mark. And Paul's like, nope, I scratched that guy off my Christmas list. <laughs> like, that dude bailed on us. He flaked. And in fact, they, Barnabas and Paul get in kind of this, well, the Bible says it was no small dispute, right? They, they have some pretty a heated exchange. Uh, in, in fact, such a debate where I think Barnabas, true to his nature, it means son, he's the son of encouragement, right? He, he's like, all right, fine, I'll, I'll take Mark then. We're going to go to Crete. Paul takes Silas, and, the, and they go, and they go on you know, their, their way. But uh, you make your way through the Gospels and you re- the Gospel and the New Testament, you realize, oh, uh, it, it, it seems as though they, they were able to reconcile and make up um, in fact, Paul, writing one of his last letters, he's writing to Timothy. He says, hey, uh, go find John Mark. Go get John Mark and, and bring him to me. Um, God wants to use him, and I think it'll be good. It's the end of Second uh, Timothy 4. Uh, it's the same Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. So we have the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's Mark, and, um, you know, and Mark wasn't necessarily one of the original disciples, right? Um, he's writing, often it seems he writes from the perspective of Peter. And, and so it seems as though Peter and Mark had made a strong connection. In fact, there's this funny scene that John Mark writes about in the Gospel of Mark um, when Jesus gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, you know, as everyone's scattering, this one young man, uh, the Roman soldiers grabbed his tunic and he ran away naked. Right? He's streaking. There's streakers in the Bible. And, uh, and so many believe he, he's talking about himself. He didn't want to be embarrassed, so he just talked about himself in the third person. Like, um, but what happens is, it, it seems as though, again, church history says that Peter, Peter became a mentor for Mark, for John Mark. That they would connect at some point after his time with Barnabas and again, that's why Mark's gospel has so much of Peter's perspective. But notice that he calls him his son. He calls him his son. So it conveys this fatherly admiration and connection, adoration for this young man. I think it, it, it speaks to the role. Uh, I would even say maybe responsibility of of a God-given discipleship, right? We're, the Great Commission is that we are to go and make disciples. That's, that's true, not just of Peter. That's not just true of church leadership. Uh, that, that's you and me. That's all of us, right? We, we all have this commission that we're all to go and make disciples. And so, uh, you know, it speaks to the idea of mentorship, uh, discipleship. 
And so what, what do we learn from this dynamic here? I, uh, I just kind of phrase it this way. I think, I think we should be intentional. I think we should be in pursuit of relationships that uh, discipleship relationships where, where you are mentoring, and I'd add this, and you're being mentored, right? Maybe if you've been in church for a while, maybe you've heard it said, like, every, everybody should have a Paul and a Timothy in their life. Uh, a person, an older person who's speaking life and truth that'll hold you accountable, that will challenge you spiritually. That, that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. We should have a person like that in our life. And then we should be the one who's that to somebody else, to speak into their life, to encourage them, and I dare say that, you know, we, we grow best when we do as God has designed us, right? I mean, God, God, God is glorified through that. And when you and I operate as God has designed us to be within the church and within our family, I mean, that's true of marriage, that's true of family, that's true of every arena of our life. And that's certainly true of our spiritual relationships. When we, when we do it the way that God says, you should do this, do it this way. And so it, it's, an, it's intentional investment. It's intentional investment. It's pursuing those things. The Bible says that, uh, listen, if you're, if you're a lady and you, you, you have some years in the Lord, and when Titus talks about the older women, it doesn't necessarily mean older in age. Certainly that can also be true, but it's the idea of older in Christ. So you... You, you, you're mature in the Lord, well, you, you, get a, you have a, a privilege and a responsibility, a blessing to help invest in the younger women that are in the Lord. Uh, the same is true for us as men, certainly true for us as families, that we have this, uh, I call it a mandate. Right? We, we have a mandate. It's a blessing, it's not a burden. It's a mandate to, to, to train up the next generation. Again, we do that within our individual context, and we do that as a church. And this morning, I know Sarah, who led worship this morning, she's 16 years old, part of our youth group. And I've known her for 16 years, and it's been a blessing to watch her just grow up into this young lady, you know, beautiful woman of the Lord, and um, you know, using her gifts. And, and it's not just her. Like We, we, we want to do that for all, all of our kids, right? Make space for them, and, and, and make a place for them, and and equip them and launch them and, and encourage them to go further and do better than we've done. And, and for us as a church, I mean, that's, that's, what we, that's what we want to do. I mean, again, I'm so grateful for God's grace in our, in our community and that given our own youth leaders are homegrown. Like, what a gift that God's given us. Josh and Genoa and Azer and Andrew and these guys, like, they're they all, they all youth kids themselves when they began here with us. And so this relationship, again, encourages me and challenges me. The fact that Peter would acknowledge, hey, Mark, my son, he, he greets you as well. And so those are the, those are the people. Um, let's, let's get to what he's talking about, these two encouragements or um, commands or exhortations he gives. Back to verse 12. He says, I've written you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And so what, what is Peter saying here? Peter affirms his heart for them, right? By these words that he has preached and, and given to them. And, and basically, he's just saying, listen, I, I, I know what I'm saying is true. Right? Peter had a unique relationship with Jesus 
in that, in a place in the early church, in that he was an eyewitness, right? He, he ate lunch with Jesus, right? He's on the mountain with Jesus. He's walking on, you know, water with Jesus. They did the first stand-up paddleboard together, right? That's, that's Peter. And so he has this really unique place within the, the body of Christ. And so he writes and he basically says, listen, I, I've written to you. It's just a little bit, but I'm testifying of this truth. I'm exhorting you. This is true. This is the true grace in which you stand. It's all true. And, and I love the fact that he says, this is true grace of God by which you stand. You know, that word grace in his, is used every single chapter in his letter. He folds that in. Because Peter himself again, right, of all of the people, he knows the grace of God and what it meant for him in his own life. And the only reason he, he can stand and the only reason that he has any ability to even write these things is solely because of God's grace in his own life. He is the product of God's grace, right? And so he is the promoter of God's grace. And gang, we should be the same. It's by God's grace alone, the Bible says, that we're even saved. It's a gift of God. Nothing we do, we can't boast. It's by God's grace that we're saved. It's God's, by God's grace that we're sanctified. It's God, by God's grace that we get to serve. It's God's grace that we, well, by which we get to stand. It's all God's grace. And I would, I would lovingly challenge and even argue that it's not a passive position. But it's active. You go through the Bible, and the Bible gives us both declaratives, things that are true about you, but also we have imperatives. There's things to know, things to believe, things to do, and things to behave, right? Ways to behave. And you and I are not called to be passive participants in the kingdom. We're called to be active. And so there are actions and there are attitudes that the Spirit directs us to. And, and I would say, and it's God's grace that empowers us to do that. And so when we come to these kind of imperative things, know that it's not a, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I've got to make sure that I do this. Like, oh, yeah, we, we do that in concert with the Spirit of God, and we do that in, in response to God's grace, you know, working through our lives. And so we, we, we want to. I even wrote it this way. We must. We, we need to make sure that we're standing in the grace of God and that we're living out of the grace of God. That, that, that's, the, that's the best place to be. Because there's a lot of temptation for us to move from that place. In fact, you, know, you, you might know some brothers and sisters who have, right? There seems to be this kind of movement uh, the idea like, oh, no, we, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Like, we need to go back to following, you know, the Mosaic law. We can't be eating certain things. And we, you know, we're, oh, worshiping on Sunday, that's, that's terrible. We shouldn't be doing that. I don't, like, I have some people that are, you know, starting to buy into some of these thoughts. And I think about when Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he says, uh, it's kind of funny the way he writes. He's like, uh, who bewitched you? Like, who cast a spell on you? Like, do, you, do you think that having begun in the spirit, the idea of begun by just the grace of God, that now all of a sudden that you're going to be made perfect by your own actions and your own deeds, like the working of your flesh and obedience to the, to the law? Right? He challenges them on that idea. Galatians 3.1. And so 
Church family, we, we do not want to move from the, the grace of God. Stand in it. Peter says it is the true grace of God in which we stand. And so that's, that's one directive. That's one imperative. The other imperative is verse 14. And it's a curious one to me. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And so Peter ends his letter with one, this last imperative. And he closes, as most of the New Testament writers will do, just benediction of blessing, peace to you, those of you in Christ Jesus. But it's curious to me, the idea of greet one another with a kiss of love, because the Apostle Paul does the same thing. Several times he, he writes and he closes his letter and he'll say, greet another with a holy kiss. The book of Romans, the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians. And so now we have five, six occasions where uh, there is an imperative to greet each other with a kiss. So my question is, does that mean that we need to do that? Is that a timeless practice that for us as a church that we should be doing? Can you imagine our COVID cases? Yeah. <laughs> and if we were supposed to be doing it, why aren't we doing it? I know some of you are like, I, I'm barely comfortable with a fist bump. Like, don't even hug me. Handshake. Yeah, handshake. Because so I, I have good news. Uh, I, I suggest to you that the, 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 the practice is culturally specific. The principle is timeless. The principle of a loving greeting, a, a warm and sincere acknowledgement of one another, but uh, the practice of kissing in that way, this affectionate greeting, that's a cultural thing. And, and we still see it in cultures today, don't we? The way that they greet each other, um, especially among family members. I, I think there are a number of them. I'm, gonna, I'm sure there's more than the ones that I can think of, but I think Hispanic culture uh, tends to be that way. The Filipino culture, Hawaiian culture, even in Europe, right? Middle Eastern culture, they, they greet each other with a, you know, sometimes it's one kiss or it's two, it's on the cheek. Sometimes it's just an air kiss, you know. Um, but not in Japan, right? Not, not in Okinawa. In fact, even if you, try to, if you ever try to hug my Okinawan grandma, my oba, she'd karate chop you in the throat. Like, you, you couldn't even touch her, like, let alone kiss her. Uh, yeah, you'd be dead. So. But the culture in Peter's day, for many of the Jews and, and the Greeks, the Romans, that, that's the way that they greet each other within their cultural context. That was one thing that they shared. And so, again, I want to suggest to you, when Peter writes this, uh, he's saying, listen, you, you should warmly acknowledge each other across those cultural lines. So they're okay to do it within their, their own, you know, with their own people. You know, they, all of those cultures did it. Remember even the Jewish culture, uh, there in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Judas betrays Jesus, he, he comes up and he kisses him, right? And the idea is he kisses him on the cheek. It's a warm greeting, but... Oh, it's so, just a dagger though, right? He's betraying him with a kiss. That's the idea. And so Peter is encouraging these Christians to treat fellow Christians, regardless of ethnicity, across these cultural lines. We're one large spiritual family of God. And so how does that play out in our context? Well, for here, you know, for many of us in the body and our church family, you, it's okay. You just you bow and you smile. Like, that's good, right? That's their, that's their greeting. For others of us, it's maybe a high five, an elbow, it's a fist bump, or it's a, or it's a, a side hug, anaconda squeeze, right? 
um, you can do the bow. Uh, or I call it the, Cali the Southern California bow. Um, Yumi-san, when she was doing the translation of notes, she's like, what is that? I'm like, well, you know, in Japan, you bow this way. In Southern California, you bow this way. <laughs> you go the opposite direction. Yeah. If you want to make it really friendly, you throw your, your hands up with it, right? So what does that mean? It, it, it means this. We're, we're, exhorted, we're exhorted as a body of Christ that our love, our love should be true, right, genuine. And guess what? It, it gets to go on display. And it should be on display. Jesus says the world's going to know we belong to him by our love for one another. The Bible says don't let us love in word, but also in deed. And, and so it, it goes on display in the way that we interact. For others to see, but also for us to share, right? For us to share in. All right. Oh, I'm already over. I, I'm going to just, I'm just going to give these last three quick thoughts. Yumi, so sorry. Daijobu? Last three quick thoughts about Peter's example. Number one, what do we learn from Peter? He valued relationships. It wasn't just a chore, a project to finish. It wasn't just a task for him to do. And I would say for us, our, our, greatest, our greatest treasure, aside from our relationship with Christ, it is our relationship with each other. It's this. It's the community of Christ. And it's this, and we've talked about this before, and I think it's the, it's the one drum I love to be. Uh, this is eternal. Right? Our, our relationships with Christ are eternal. And so my perspective is, if this is eternal, then this is what I want to invest in. Like This is where I want to pour my heart and soul in. And, and I think it pays the greatest dividends. And we're called not to be passive, but uh, active. So Peter valued relationships. We, we should value relationships. Uh, another two, number two, I just, I, I appreciate Peter in that he, he acknowledged people. He just acknowledged, he gave a genuine appreciation for them. He recognized who they are and recognized their worth. And, and I think that's a great quality for us to glean from. And then lastly, what I love about Peter is, and again, I think it's an extension of his own life, but, but he's the giver of second chances. And, and why do I say that? Because John Mark blew it, right? John Mark had blown it big time. Now, Barnabas was the first one who was like, hey, I'm good with John Mark, let's go. But, but Peter, who also was a leader within the church, along with Paul, didn't just follow Paul's lead, but he made his own decision to say, you know what, I'm okay with John. I'm going to invest in John. I'm going to work with, with Mark, John Mark. And, and, and Mark becomes the writer of a gospel, right? Because we all make mistakes, and we all can blow it, and we all can bail on people and, and, and fumble, and, and yet... You know, God's not done with us. And yet sometimes we can be the one that are like, mm, they're off my Christmas list. I'm going to unfriend them. I'm not going to, like, we, we can cut people off too quick. And so I'm encouraged by, by Peter. But he was one who gave extra grace to people in his life. Because he, again, he's the recipient of that, right? I mean, he himself received a second and a third and a fourth chance from Jesus. And so if anything, maybe it's a challenging thought for some of us. The people in your life or a situation where you're like, I'm done with that person. I don't know. Pray that through. Maybe, maybe God would want you to extend another opportunity. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Your word's so rich. We thank you for just some challenges and thoughts. Lord, help us to follow us the, some of these examples that we be faithful in the areas that you call us. Lord, that we be those that embrace diversity. That we 
intentional about um, pursuing mentoring type of relationships, that we wouldn't just be recipients, passive, but Lord, help us to be active. Help us to be, as we stand in your grace, to be those that uh, pursue and invest in relationships. And maybe for some of us this morning, it it looks like um, reopening a door for um, a second chance and appreciating others, Lord. Ultimately, it's those, it's relationships that make us rich. And so we, we pray that you'd help us to invest and pursue those things that are of greatest value to you and in the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.